Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and today we're talking about divorce, separation, and younger kids. This conversation is with my guest, Claire Lerner, who's the Director of Parenting Resources at Zero to Three National Center for Infants, Toddlers, and Families. And she has her own private practice, the Lerner Child Development Center. We're having this conversation because I've gotten so many questions about how to talk to kids if you are separating, if you're divorced, if you're co-parenting, what can you do to help your kids thrive despite these challenging circumstances? And we're focused more on younger children and school-aged, and we'll do another episode for older kids. This was more personal for us because we both are in this field and also divorced. And so we've experienced this. So we are bringing the research, but with so much compassion because nobody sets out to have this happen. And sometimes it does, and sometimes it's the most healthy thing that you can do, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't make it very difficult to support your kids. And the positive part of this, the most important thing to know is that all of the downsides to divorce and children have to do with our adult behavior. So since we can control our own behavior, there's a lot that you can do to help kids through this difficult time. Thank you as always for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe, rate, and write a little review. Those ratings and reviews really help get the podcast out there. So I appreciate it. And DM me on at Raising Good Humans podcast on my Instagram. I'm actually going to add one new episode a month dedicated to your questions. So keep sending them in and I'll have more of an opportunity to reach you and respond. Eliza, I'm so glad to be on your show. I'm a huge fan. I think you're making an amazing contribution to parents, uh, covering so many critically important topics. And I'm particularly excited that you asked me to talk about, you know, separation and divorce uh, with young kids because I work with a lot of families who are going through this challenging time, but I've also been through it myself. I was um, separated when my kids were six and barely four. And so it's actually really near and dear to my heart. 
Claire, I also, and we, this is not, this is just a coincidence that we are doing this topic and we both have been through this experience. So I got separated and divorced when I had young children as well. I had my daughter, my baby was three and my oldest was six. So I was right there with you. And it's even more special to have this conversation with you because I, I don't, get a chance to talk about this, but I think we have the ability to have a conversation about what might be best practice, but also reality and the stuff that just happens to come up that isn't necessarily so easy to find an answer to. Right. I, I, you know, I think in this work that we do, there's always kind of the theory, but then there's reality and practice and You know, what happens in those really difficult moments when your kids raise really challenging questions that are triggering to you? And, you know, how do you manage your own emotions when you are going through such a turbulent time and also be there for your kids? And I think, you know, having gone through it, you know, really sensitizes us in a way that is hard to do, I think, if you haven't had that experience. And I appreciate that you're acknowledging it. And I'm sorry for anybody who's listening to this, thinking about this difficult time. I think we both feel so much of what that's like looking at it from such a distance. And I think starting with how to explain separation and how to explain divorce in the context of not going through separation um, when there's just complete clarity would be a, a good starting point. The language that you can use for younger children and for school-age children. Right. So, of course, that is, you know, one of the most difficult moments for parents, you know, when you have already been holding this knowledge for obviously varying lengths of time, depending on the family situation. And usually by the time you're telling your children about this, there's a fair amount of anxiety because you're human and, you know, the worry and the pain of having to share this news is, you know, can be really tough. So I would start by saying that being tuned in to your own emotions and finding a way to manage them is so critical. You know, it it's not denying your feelings or pushing them under the rug. It's finding a way to deal with them in a healthy way with trusted friends and family so that you have an outlet that's healthy and appropriate so that when it comes time to talk to your kids directly about it, you are able to do it in a way that is calm and centered as much as possible because they are going to pick up as much on your tone and your facial expressions and your affect as they are on your words. Managing your emotions is easier said than done. And often, you know, I know a heavy lift, but it's a gift you give to yourself as well as your kid. So that's one thing, no matter the age of your child. Then of course, the age of your child matters a lot in terms of how you're going to approach it. Because 
when you're dealing with very young kids, I would say, you know, three and under, it's important to keep in mind their perspective and how they process information, which is very concrete. They don't yet have the abstract thinking that starts to develop, you know, closer to three and then continues to develop. So it's very important that you stay as concrete as possible so that it is in some way relatable to them. So for example, it might be something as simple as mommy and daddy have decided to live in different houses. We love you very, very much. We will always love you and take very good care of you, but it will be in separate homes. And then you would stop. And the reason is because it's a lot for a child to process. And because when we say too much, it's usually because we're anxious and it's overwhelming to the child. We over explain and it's not helpful to them. It's usually more because we are uncomfortable and we're just using a lot of language to kind of mollify the situation, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not helpful to the child. And so you want to pause to give them time to process it. Then the rest of the conversation is just responding to what they put forth and not presupposing that they even need more information at that time. You really want to take your cues from them. I remember so vividly because I had a three-year-old and a six-year-old sitting at the same table and we were talking to them and my three-year-old didn't know really what was going on, but she looked at my six-year-old and saw that she cried. Mm-hmm. So, but otherwise she didn't really have any questions. She just saw that there was something sad and there's no getting around. This particular conversation is probably the worst one I've ever had. That was definitely the, the hardest time, but for them, it's not, especially when they're that young. Yeah. And I think that's so important. What you're raising is that the natural state for us as parents, and this is really true, regardless of the child's age, is we do so much projecting of our own feelings onto our kids. Like we imagine what we think this means to them and we assign that meaning and then we react based on that when a lot of the time that's not necessarily what they're feeling or processing about this. And that's where that boundary is so important. So sort of let the process unfold and let them tell you what they need. Like for me, the rule of thumb has become, if your child doesn't have the information they need, they will let you know. Like if they don't keep asking questions, it's a signal that they've taken in what they can And they need time to cope with that. And like more is not better. More sometimes actually is 
sort of flooding their brain and not enabling the healthier process that we want to unfold for them at their own pace and in their own way. I totally agree. And I think if you have a kid who you think isn't dealing with it or talking to you about it, it's because they're centered in their own life. And if you're keeping their life as relatively stable as possible, as you go through the process, they'll ask you as needed. And maybe you check in once in a while. I just wanted to check in and see how you're doing and if you have any questions. Exactly. I think the most important thing is that they know you can handle anything that you want to hear about their feelings, that you can be comfortable with their discomfort, um, that you're never going to ignore or minimize or invalidate their feelings. If you can set that up in the way that you talk to them about this from day one, then you have your greatest currency, which is that they will always come to you when they need to come to you. And so that's a little bit different when they can process a little more as they get closer to school age. Right. right. So it's it's interesting. I've actually found that it's still most helpful to just put out there exactly what is going to happen. Like mommy and daddy have decided now with an older child, if they have heard about and have some context for understanding this idea of separation or divorce, then using that language is helpful because otherwise it sounds like you are like either minimizing or skirting around it you know, kids will say like, oh, what do you mean you're getting divorced? So you want to be an honest broker. That is your greatest currency. Wonderful, is that yeah. They, they know that you are always going to tell them the truth. That is what is most important. So if you know your child has context for this, then I would use that language. I would say mommy and daddy have decided to separate. That means that we are going to live in different homes. We're still going to be your mommy and daddy. We're still going to take great care of you guys, love you, do all these things with you, but we're just going to do it from separate houses. And then you pause because you want to allow for the same process to unfold. With older kids, you could expect that there will probably be a lot more questions because their processing ability is much greater at, you know, even five, six, seven, or eight than it is at three or even four. Okay. So Claire, this is one of those moments that I I think the theory is a little harder without real preparation, because one of the questions is often why, and when you're watching your children feel pain, you want to give a good reason. And a lot of times those reasons aren't appropriate and they're adult reasons. So can you help us understand the language that you can use with kids where you're you're being straightforward? As you said before, you don't want them to just look at you and say, so you're getting divorced, um, you know, tell it to me straight. But you're not oversharing or putting in your, you know, whatever is going on between you and your co-parent into the conversation. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's so important is 
to stay focused on what you imagine is going on in your child's brain versus your brain. The more they can make sense of this based on their lived experience, the better. So being exposed to challenging relationship issues is going to probably cause more anxiety because they haven't had an adult relationship. So they have no way of processing that. And when kids don't have the ability to make sense of information, it causes anxiety. And that's what we're trying to indemnify against. And that's why being so concrete and saying things that may feel uncomfortable to you, but that are more helpful to them is better. So for example, just saying mommy and daddy have decided just like, you know, you may decide that you're not wanting to spend a lot of time with a friend anymore. We don't feel like we can be the best mommy and daddy to you in the same house. We are going to be in separate houses where we're both going to take really good care of you, but we don't want to be married anymore. And I'm just going to play through this because I think this, this is one of those moments where if one parent feels like they didn't want to make this choice and another parent made more of the choice that there's a blaming a possibility or a temptation to blame or say, ask your other parent, or I don't know the answer. So can you help walk through those moments and encourage again, that lens of what is the child's lived experience versus our own projection of what we need them to know? Right. So I think, you know, that's where parents coming together and ideally trying to get on the same page about what the message is, is Mm -hmm. so critical because it's not even actually just the words you say, but it's the affect and, you know, tone of what you're saying. Like I said before, the kids are going to pick up on And in order for them to work through this in as healthy a way as possible, what we know from tons of research is that what children need is to be able to move forward and make as strong and loving and secure as possible connection with each of their parents and not to be triangulated or put in the middle and be exposed to the tensions and conflicts of the couple. And so it's really important that the one thing you agree on if you're going through this is that you both share the deep desire to ensure that your child is as minimally affected as possible given the circumstances. And in order to do that, you have a big role in that. And that should feel empowering to parents that they have a lot of control over how their child processes and works through this experience and what narrative they create about it. That is what parents do control. And if parents can get together and say, yes, we're making this decision, It's going to be really painful, 
but we are totally committed to ensuring that it affects our children as little in a detrimental way as possible. That will guide you to be able to sit with them and just mutually explain that you've decided that you no longer work together as a married couple, but you work really well together as parents to them living in separate homes. And you deal with your conflict and your emotions about each other and your relationship separately. I really want to highlight what you just said, that this there is something that is in our control as parents because it does feel like it's such a hard time. But the difference between, you know, when when people feel like there's this terrible thing, I'm a child of divorce, divorce, divorce has all of these negative connotations. In the research, much of that is mitigated by parental support and by removing some of the animosity and legal battles and mess of well, the adult version of divorce. So empower, like thinking of that as empowering and self-regulating enough in the service of ourselves and our kids can make a massive difference in how they do. And that I, I cannot sort of reinforce that enough that that message to parents is so important because they feel so crazy and out of control and overwhelmed by their own emotions, usually. I mean, not obviously that's a generalization. And they're worried, like most of what they do with their children related to this is driven by their wanting to minimize the negative impact of a very difficult decision they're making. Like most parents are so racked with guilt about what is about to happen, this seismic shift in their children's world, traumatic for many kids, is so overwhelming to the parent that there's a tendency to not be centered and calm in the way that is going to be most helpful for your kids. And Make it so that, and this is what I say to all parents, that we're going to help you go through this with your child in a way that when you look back on this in two years, five years, 10 years, you're not going to have any regrets. I find that really, that, that helps parents center themselves and have a guiding light that it's organizing to them because that is so compelling to them. They relate to that. Like, I don't want to regret. I don't want to look back. I've seen so many families where it was a complete and epic disaster and the negative impact it had to my friends or my cousins or whoever they had seen gone through a divorce. And I don't want to be that person. Like I want to do this the right way. And that can be the motivation that overrides the emotionality that is likely to break through during these conversations. That's such a wonderful way of putting it. And it will override it when you're intentional. And then, you know, there will be moments of messing up. But if the overall message to parents is that you can override that initial mayhem that's going on inside of you to try to 
move forward with this difficult decision in a way that doesn't have you looking back going, oh my God, what have I done? The other thing I was thinking is that really when kids are asking questions, they're really looking for sort of reassurance, I would think from like a feelings perspective. So it's also helpful to say, I know you're concerned about how mommy and daddy might be once we're not together. Like you use your intuition as your parent, your kids are asking you questions about like, what's really the meta question that's going on here, right? Like, well, where are you going to live? How far is it going to be? It's important to recognize that they need the concrete information, of course, but what they're probably really asking is like, are you close enough? How, you know, what is it going to feel like to go from one house to another? How often am I going to see you? So you want to answer their questions very concretely, but also be tuned in to the meta message of what they're asking. It's such an important point. There's a difference between acknowledging when you are having feelings so that they don't feel like they're seeing something and then you're denying it and not having those feelings take over in a way that makes your kids feel like they have to take care of you or worry about where you're going to be sleeping or are you going to be lonely when they're with the other parent or any of that stuff. So I think those are two important things to dive into a little bit. One How can you be authentic, but centered and self-regulated so that you've got you, you, you know how to take care of you and your kids can rest assured that you know how to take care of you. Even if you have a moment of just breaking out into tears or you didn't, you know, you disappointed yourself that day, you got into a space that wasn't what you had intended. What I'm trying to get at is I hear this a lot. I hear parents feel like, They don't want to lie to their children about how they feel. And also their feelings and what they're going through are too big and too much for their children to have to have on their plates. So how can we talk about giving enough information to your kids about the emotional stuff and also reassure them that you know how to take care of yourself? Like there is not, it's it's very kind and compassionate for them to have concerns. And as you said that, what are the real big questions? What are they really getting into? And also that that's not something you don't have covered. Right. So I think the way I see it is that you can both be vulnerable and also be strong. And those two states can coexist. So you start to cry and your child says to you, mommy, don't be sad. Or why are you crying? It's very important to not do what is going to be a knee jerk reaction, which is going to be to minimize it because that's for most of us, we are worried that our child's going to be burdened by that. We're like, oh, no, 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 mommy's fine, mommy's fine. The problem is that kids are very smart and many of them have really, really high EQ, you know, emotional intelligence, especially the really highly sensitive kids who are so tuned in to their parents' every emotion and 
you know, read body signals um, and they know what they're seeing. So it's actually not helpful to them to minimize it because it discounts what they are perceiving and we want them to trust their feelings. So instead it might be, you know what, sweetie, mommy is feeling sad right now. This is a really big change in our family and we're all working through it. And I can feel sad, but I, I'm still strong. We're still going to do what we are going to do together. I'm still going to take care of you. You can be sad and also be strong. I think that's the really important message. And that's a gift to your child. And that's quite different than using your child as your therapist. Exactly. And that's the really fine but critically important line to be very mindful of. Summer is just around the corner. Why not gift your young innovators with super cool STEAM projects to celebrate the end of the school year? With a KiwiCo subscription, your child gets a new crate full of science and art projects every month. For trailblazing toddlers to more experienced explorers and every stage in between. There are so many cool building projects. You can make a kaleidoscope. And how fun are kaleidoscopes when you can make them yourself? I will tell you from personal experience, very. And for those times when your kids have done all the free play they can, they've entertained themselves, and you don't want to turn to a screen, KiwiCo does all the legwork for you so you can just spend more quality time hanging out or relaxing and knowing that they've got something to do. There's something for kids of all ages, and the best part is watching them explore, create, and get excited for the next time. With KiwiCo, there's something for every kid or kid at heart every single month. Get 30% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with the code humans at kiwico.com. That's 30% off your first month at kiwico.com, promo code humans. If there's ever been a year to make the dads in your life feel loved and appreciated on Father's Day, this is the one. Some caregiver in your child's life that you can honor, a dad, an uncle, a grandfather, a father-in-law, a friend who's been really supportive with a heartfelt sentimental gift that the whole family can cherish together. StoryWorth. It's an online service that helps your dad, grandfather, father-in-law, and every father figure in your life share stories through thought-provoking questions about their memories and personal thoughts. It's a fun new way to engage with them, especially if you can't be together in person. So here's how it works. Every week, StoryWorth emails your father or father figure a different story prompt, questions you've never thought about asking, questions you've never asked but wanted to, like what's your favorite story about your father and what things are you proudest of in life? StoryWorth has helped numerous families learn about each other in profound ways. There's no shortage of surprises when reading the weekly stories, and they make your family feel close even when you're not together. Everybody likes to share their story. Sometimes it's hard to get it out, and sometimes it's hard to figure out what to ask. But after one year, StoryWorth 
compiles all of those stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake that is shipped for free. And it becomes a book for you and your family to share together. So give your dad or dad figure the most meaningful gift this Father's Day with StoryWorth. Get started right away with no shipping required by going to storyworth.com slash humans, and you'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash humans. Looking at your skin every day on Zoom, you become hyper aware of every new little spot on your skin and you kind of can start to get self-conscious. Here's the thing. Stacked skincare was created by celebrity esthetician, Carrie Benjamin, and it brings you treatments like dermaplaning and microneedling to your bathroom counter. And I'm not saying that you should be self-conscious when you're staring at yourself on Zoom all day. Probably you should turn the camera off or at least the self-view. But This is an inspiring time to take care of your skin. So every product that Carrie developed is a reimagined idea of the at-home skincare routine based on Carrie's professional technique of stacking facial tools and gentle exfoliation treatments to drive glowing, boosting actives deeper into the skin. Carrie's techniques transform skin from within to resolve concerns and just make you feel really good. The most recent developed product is fantastic. It's the new Cryo Ice Roller, a refreshing face massager that you leave in your freezer. And when you put it on your skin, it reduces puffiness, inflammation, itching, and redness. It's perfect for giving puffy eyes a quick pick-me-up if you've gotten a little less sleep than you desired. And it feels so good. As moms, we're taking a lot of time to care for our kids. This is just a couple of minutes to care for yourself, and it feels so luxurious. You might have a skincare routine and be slathering on awesome creams, and that's fantastic. (laughs) But if you go deeper than that with stacked skincare, every product is developed to get all those products in your skin deeper and from the inside, and you get these glowing boosts. I highly recommend it. And I definitely recommend the new cryo ice roller for the most refreshing way to start your day or go to bed at night. And if you go to stackedskincare.com slash raising good humans, you get 20% off your first purchase. That's S-T-A-C-K-E-D skincare.com slash Raising Good Humans for 20% off your first purchase. So I guess there's this other thing that can happen, which is parents bad-mouthing each other. And in an ideal world, of course, making the decision not to bad-mouth each other or put your child in that being in the middle, being a messenger, giving information about the other parent, those are all really important commitments to make with your co-parent. But sometimes it's not that easy or, you know, two parents aren't on the same page. And if that's the case, how can one parent who has made that decision to honor the other parent, I guess is the best word I can think of right now, what is one way to respond when that happens. Because I, I, I can think of so many cases where parents, totally well-meaning, but just in an emotional state, 
you know, blame the other one for any, who knows what it is, being late, like little things. I think that people listening to this probably aren't saying the big stuff. Well, maybe I'm wrong, but my guess is that there, there's a certain amount, you know, don't badmouth the other parent because it's never, it doesn't feel good. That's still that person, that's your child's parent. And it doesn't feel good to hear negative things about them. It's, it makes us all feel so defensive and protective, but there's also that other stuff, that subtle stuff that feels like maybe you can get away with just a little bit of a passive aggressive statement. And I want to kind of speak to those because it can grow like one, you know, a child mentions one of those comments and a parent builds off of it and these messages go back and forth. So that's kind of where I wanted you to, what I wanted you to address is kind of how to respond to that. And also to make it so that there's never a situation where a child feels like they're connecting over that kind of information either. Right. Yeah. Well, this is big um, because it's one of those key variables that research clearly shows can really negatively affect the child. You know, one of the things I think is important to point out is that the research shows that, and this is true about a lot of, you know, major changes or traumatic experiences children have in childhood, is that it's not just what happens to you, like the actual event, but it's how it's handled and the narrative the child creates about that experience as they grow. And the children of divorce who are not burdened by being triangulated into their parents' relationship where a parent is trying to get the child to take their side or be angry at another parent or create these loyalty conflicts where, let's say, you know, a, a mom communicates to the child that if you are close or missing or wanting your dad, it's hurting me. And then the child is stuck in this really difficult situation where, you know, where she has to make this terrible choice. You know, am I going to disappoint mommy and, you know, have a relationship with my dad or am I going to, you know, defy that? And that is a, a, a terrible, terrible choice for a child to have to make. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to not create that dynamic as much as possible for your child. Now, in the situation you're describing, Aliza, where like, let me just pause and say the most foundational mindset, I think that you want to keep in mind in this situation is that the only person you control is you. You have zero control over what your partner or ex-partner is going to do. So if you can keep your eye on the prize, which is you can make choices that are going to maximize the chance that your child is going to move on in as successful a way as possible. So in the weeds, like here's a a classic example, uh, because I actually work with many families right now who are going through divorce. And so a child, um, let's say your child says to you, well, daddy says 
you know, you let me watch too much TV or you're not supposed exactly. to go out, you know, yeah. you're not <laughs> supposed to go out when I, you know, when I'm here, so on and so on. The m- most loving thing you could do is say something like this. You know what, sweetie? I know it must be really confusing because, you know, daddy has one set of rules and I have a different set of rules. And I know it's really hard to adapt to, you know, what the expectations are here and what the expectations are there. You know, you know, I know at daddy's, you get to do this at our house. I have a rule that we don't do that. We don't have screens during the week. I know that's disappointing to you and that you wish you were at daddy's right now because he lets you do that. But it's your night with me and it's totally fine if you're not happy with that rule. When you're ready to read books together, let me know. You know, you really want to not play into that dynamic. Uh, Here's another good example. A mom telling her child that the reason they have to live in this small apartment is because daddy took all their money. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the dad comes and says, I don't know what to do with this. And so what I would suggest is saying something like, you know what, sweetie, again, I, I, I find acknowledging the confusion is critical because really that at the heart of it, that is, something these children are struggling with mightily is just a lot of confusion about how to make sense of being in different homes, why you separated, you know, the different approaches that each of you has. It's really overwhelming. So I feel like you can't make this go away and you can't take your child's feelings away. That's not helpful to them because the feelings just fester and grow. It's much more helpful to acknowledge it. I know that must be really confusing and upsetting for you to hear that. I could imagine that that would make you really uncomfortable to think that that's why you're in a small apartment. This is really complicated, sweetie, and it's going to be really, really hard to understand because this is an adult issue. And yes, mommy and daddy are working out, you know, how we spend our money, how we're both going to take care of you, but we're both going to have really great homes, whether they're big or small, where you are going to be safe and secure. So like you see what I'm doing is I'm not taking the bait. I'm not reacting as much as I want to and to defend myself because that's about you. That's what you need, but that's not what your child needs. So it gets to the point you raised earlier is like, how do you draw this boundary? I want to say one last thing to this. I know like that the words that came out of my mouth are very thoughtful and mindful because I've had years to think about this and work with families on it and work on it myself. So what I would say to parents in the thick of this is that when kids bring this really charged, triggering stuff up, you do not have to answer right away. It's it's often not helpful because you're likely to go down a path that you may regret. So it's actually loving to say, you know what, sweetie, I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm so glad you told me that. I'm so glad you asked me that question. I always want to hear what's on your mind. And it's a really good question. I need a little bit of time to think about 
how I'm going to help you understand the answer to that question. Wonderful. Give yourself, you know, a little time to really manage the emotions that are getting triggered and say to yourself, okay, that's my feeling. That's my need to defend myself. But what is going to be helpful to my child? And, you know, along those lines as well, and that was such, so beautifully put, guilt. I, I want, I don't want Ugh. to end this conversation without talking about guilt and what that can lead you to do in terms of your parenting and how to, it kind of expands on what you're saying. Is this what my child's need, you know, asking yourself, is this what my child needs right now? Or is this what I need right now to help you maintain the boundaries that you have and not fall into the traps of guilty parent or always available parent because, you know, you just never want your child to feel unloved. And so you go in an extreme direction that maybe is actually not super healthy. Yeah. I mean, again, that, you know, just the questions you're raising, I'm realizing like we could talk for hours because there's so, there's so many tentacles to this, you know, that we're never going to have enough time to really delve into. But I think what you're raising now is so overarching this, the guilt thing. And it's something that is really important for you to get a handle on, you know, because acting on it actually is not helpful to your child. So one very common dynamic is parents feel like they have damaged their child, that they have taken something away from them that it's been so harmful that they don't want them to quote unquote suffer anymore. And so they let up on a lot of limits, which actually leads to way more stress and dysregulation for kids and to outcomes that are are not helpful for them in the long run. So they do things like you know, say, fine, you're going to, you know, get three extra hours of screen time, or they're going to let them watch movies. They normally wouldn't have let them and they'll let them eat in front of the TV when their family, when, or the moms, let's say, or the dads, you know, value is to eat a family meal together. They don't want to upset their children. So to avoid the potential tantrum or the disappointment or the frustration, they don't set the important boundaries that we know are critically important for children to thrive. Okay. So Claire, let's use an example that is often so fraught, sleep and guilt. And when, you know, when parents make different choices about where their child is going to sleep or going from sleeping in their own room to sleeping in their bed or whatever it is, that feels like an enormous example of how guilt and trying to control what other people choose can play into these moments. Yeah, I think I I would say that the top two sort of areas of limit setting that get very bent out of shape at this time are sleep and then also kind of like buying your kids like Mm -hmm. endless amounts of things like not 
being able to say no to anything as if showering them with, you know, 50 My Little Ponies or, you know, a gazillion Paw Patrol figures is going to, in some ways, lessen the pain. So let's take sleep. I think that what you said earlier is so important, which is if you can engage in a process where you take a step back and say to yourself, am I doing this because I actually think it's really good for my child and their development, or am I doing this out of guilt? And if you can take the time to do that, that will help you make choices that are more mindful and ultimately healthier for both you and your child. Because when you start to let the limits go, what ends up happening is parents end up getting very frustrated and ultimately angry at feeling like their child's in charge and is calling all the shots. And that leads to a lot of negative interactions that are way more detrimental for kids than setting a clear limit, right? So if you're somebody who needs a lot of sleep and is really uncomfortable sharing a bed with your two, three, four, five, six-year-old, and it's also your belief and value that it's important for parents and children to sleep in their own spaces, then allowing your child to sleep in your bed is rarely going to be a helpful choice for anybody. So what happens often is, you know, the child says, I need to sleep in your bed. I miss you, mommy. You know, your heartstrings are pulled because you're human and it becomes very hard to set the limits because kids don't like limits. So you've got to expect protest. If you see that protest or that disappointment and not being able to sleep with you as harmful to your child, it's going to be very hard to set that limit. If you can see that it's just something that your child can learn to cope with and that the protesting or the frustration or the disappointment is just part of accepting the limit, you're going to be much better positioned to be able to implement it and not let the guilt get in the way. So really at the end of the day, I find that it takes sort of like this Zen approach where you know you're getting triggered. Your child's like, mommy, mommy, am I please sleep in my bed? I need you here. I don't want to be alone. I miss you. You are able to pause and say, yes, this feels awful and this feels so mean but is this what my child needs? Just because my child wants something, does that mean that that's what's actually good for him? And then you're able to say, you know what, sweetie, I know. I adore you. I love our time together. We're going to have our books and we're going to sing our songs and we're going to have our cuddle time. And then I'm going to say my mantra and we're going to say goodnight. And I can't wait to see you in the morning. And you hold the limit, but it, it really, I have found can only happen if you're so aware that you're triggered by it and you have a way to manage it so you can make a more conscious decision about what your child really needs. Earlier, you mentioned minimizing feelings and experiences, and that's such an important point. What are some ways that parents might minimize the experience of the child? through, again, the well-meaning attempt to do right by their kids? I know for myself, and I think it's true for many of the families I work with, that 
we are so overcome with guilt about creating this painful situation for our children. Like the last thing any of us intend to do when we become parents is to do something that we feel is going to cause our child, you know, emotional harm. And so our tendency is going to be to minimize both because we want to mitigate a negative effect on our kids, but also because we are so uncomfortable with their potential discomfort that we want to protect against the really difficult feelings that children might experience and share. So because of that, it's very common for parents to say something like this. It's going to be great. You're going to have two homes. You're going to have two sets of toys. We're going to be able to take two different beach vacations this summer. The problem is, is that kids read into that, that you are trying to tell them how to feel And the natural human reaction, just like it is for us adults, when someone is telling you what to feel, is that it actually amplifies whatever feeling that we are experiencing that is not getting validated. So it obviates the whole opportunity for the child to put on the table what they're feeling and have a chance to work that through. And it sends the message to the child that this is how I want you to feel about it. So I'm not so open to hearing about like the painful, difficult feelings. And so then children have to go underground with those feelings and they don't have a chance to put them on the table and look at them and work them through. And that's really the greatest gift. It really requires us to get comfortable with their painful feelings and to own and take responsibility for the fact that we have made a decision that is going to have impacts on our children. And I think even saying it is really important. You know, saying things like, I know that this decision we have made is really, really difficult for you. And I am really, really sorry about that. This was a mommy daddy decision. It's not a kid decision. And I totally get that you are angry about this. You don't like this decision. And I don't expect you to. I am here to help you figure it out. We're going to figure it out together. And I want to hear about all of your feelings. Before we... And this conversation that could be many, many, many conversations. Can you just address, you know, we've been talking about this really as if we're talking about one child, but can you address what the experience is when we're talking about multiple children? Because inevitably that is much of the time the situation. Yeah, that's also a really important factor that you want to keep in mind is not to have any preconceived notions. A lot of times your kids will surprise you and they will also react sometimes differently than you expect based on their ages, based on their temperaments. You know, kids aren't a monolithic group. 
there are so many factors that play into how they experience the feelings that get triggered, how they process the information. For example, very surprisingly to me, my daughter, who was barely four, burst into tears. And my older child, who is my really highly sensitive one, was completely stoic on day one. Mm. And then it evolved from there very, very differently. And my daughter had a path that continues to be very, very different than my son's. And my kids are now 28 and 30. So I really want to amplify something you said earlier, Aliza, which is that this is an iterative process. This is not like you tell your kids and then you move on. Your kids are going to make sense of this in very different ways as they go through life based on their age and stage of development, based on their personal experiences in the world. The greatest gift you give to them is just to be present, to accept their feelings, to not minimize them, to make them go away, to talk them out of their feelings, but just to acknowledge and validate and make them feel that you are somebody who can help them look at these feelings without judgment, without you getting overly wrought, because that may happen. So this does require you managing your own emotions, but that you're a safe person who can help them process this at the different stages of their life. Your job isn't to take those feelings away and you certainly can't take the experience away. Your job is to help them make sense of it as they grow. And if you can establish that from day one, then they are much more likely to come to you as a trusted resource. And that gives you the power to be somebody who can actually have a really positive impact on the way they develop their narrative about what this means for them as they grow. 